We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back to your listener. This is a podcast and a live stream all at the same time. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, all the things that you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party. People don't, and that's why they're not good at talking about them, and so we're here to fix that. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me as always, Joe the Tech Guy. Evening, all. Good morning, Joe. So welcome aboard. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Landon Hardbottom's there. Excellent, Landon. How are you? So we will talk about China. Of course we will at some stage, Landon. Can't help myself these days. I'm finding at the moment, actually, Joe, it's kind of a lot, not a lot happening in domestic politics, it seems. And it seems to me that sort of sort of geopolitics, international stuff is what's really going on at the moment. Seems to me anyway. I mean... It was sort of just all this outrage during the Morrison years where there was just any number of crazy things happening in the parliament and decisions being made, but all that sort of died down and we just seemed to have a low-key, sensible bunch of guys who spend question time bashing the opposition for the things they did the previous decade. Well, apart from the Victorian election. Yes, well, that's true, yes. And we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about the Victorian election we talk about about the USA and a bit of an update about China and then various countries, Venezuela, France, Turkey, Germany, New Zealand. And then with a bit of luck, we're going to get on to currency and money and Japan. And I was reading a very interesting sort of academic article about Japan and why Japan, Korea and Taiwan managed to break through what's a sort of a glass ceiling, it seems, for developing countries to come through and become a developed country and what was it that enabled them to do it. And it's quite interesting. And spoiler alert, it wasn't liberal free market policies that did it. Uh, it was a lot of government uh, action. If you're new to the show, we sort of explore all sorts of uh, rabbit holes and not sure where we'll end up. But, yeah, so... A couple of things to deal with, first of all. So, of course, this podcast is heavily involved in promoting secularism and bagging crazy religious people who interfere in our politics. So there is a program on ABC Radio called God Forbid, hosted by James Carlton. And last Sunday they had a podcast and they had Alison Cordes from Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools and also another lady who was sort of pro-secular, on there talking about religious instruction in schools. Joe, did you get to listen to it? Not yet. Okay. So prepare yourself because there was no, you know, there was no bishops, priests, imams, ministers there to give the the line of the sort of the pro-religious instruction line. So James Carlton decided that was his job. And it was incredibly annoying. Like, I appreciate that he had to play devil's advocate to some extent to provide a counter-argument, but it was just 
super annoying. I find the guy an annoying host at the best of time. So anyway, look that up. God forbid. Alison did a great job. And oh, essential Lord Don says there's a high-pitched whining coming through the transmission and it's none of us. Okay, I'm not else? hearing anything. Is there anybody else hearing a high-pitched whining or is it just essential Lord Don? So let us know if you hear strange audio and we will try and fix it. So if you can let us know the chat room. So, yeah, uh, God forbid, check that out. And Alison did a great job of putting it forward, uh, the case. And the other one, Joe, was 60 Minutes apparently did an expose on what's going on in Victoria with evangelicals taking over pre-selections and the sort of people that's getting pre-selected there. And I haven't, had, I haven't actually watched it yet because I just I can't stand 60 Minutes in their approach to things anymore. And I sort of feel like, well, finally mainstream media has caught up with what we've been saying for the last seven years and now these things are starting to appear, which never appeared seven years ago when we started the podcast. So that is, so that's good news. The other thing I've been thinking about lately is just, I'm just as I read stuff, I'm finding that there's all these presumptions and this faking of history that needs to be overcome. So... I think there's a need to re-examine the historical narrative and check if a false historical story is being used to prop up a contemporary bad idea. So, for example, this whole deal with China and Australia and our relationship, I mean, who started that fight? How did that start? Things like the Qatar World Cup, like apparently at the moment there's all sorts of talk about special armbands by the different playing groups and... You know, talking about the human rights abuses in Qatar, I mean, if we had a World Cup in America, would we be having the same discussion about human rights abuses that we're having with the World Cup in Qatar? And I know people can say it's whataboutism, but it's important to be consistent. Like if you think something is important, then consistently you should apply that principle across the board. And, of course... You know, when World Cups, if they were staged in America or in the United Kingdom or whatever, they don't have human rights protesters despite a well-catalogued list of human rights abuses that have been going on. So that sort of hypocrisy, if you haven't had gathered by now, really um, grates with me. The, uh, the British team was going to do some sort of protest and FIFA told them, well, if you do that, we're going to give your captain a yellow card and immediately they folded and said, oh, well, we won't do that anymore. So they weren't committed to the cause, I don't think. Other well, things? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think the UK or the US make it illegal to be gay. No, that's true. But Nor is corporal of, punishment but in terms legal of, in either of those? But in terms of human rights abuses, you know, going around and just bombing countries indiscriminate, like in terms of causing of human suffering. Yeah, but that's legal. That's not actually international law. <laughs> no, it's not when they do it unilaterally. It's actually yeah. not. Yeah. So I think if we, we look at human rights abuses and put them in, in proportion, even something like the Chinese with their locking up of the Uyghurs, like it's hard to know exactly to what extent that is happening. But arguably, yeah, because, because the press 
isn't allowed to report on it over there. No, of course not. Like it, it is genuinely difficult to find out what the truth is. But we do know about incarceration rates in America. Oh, yeah, yeah. For, for uh, such minor offences of drug I, possession. I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but Chasing the Scream. Yes. He says it may be possible modern America is the first society in human history that has a higher rate of rapes of men than rapes of women. Yeah, you did mention that because of the high incarceration rate. Because of the yeah. high incarceration rate. It, yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. You know, okay, find a protest about human rights abuses in China and Qatar, but if you're going to be consistent, you have to apply it wherever you see it. Otherwise, you're just running a propaganda line. So, you just... so we should be protesting Julian Assange in the UK? Well, that's right. I mean, they'll talk about political prisoners in these countries. Well, mm. What about that? It's, it's all about consistency. As you'll find in my arguments about various things that we talk about, I always try and maintain a consistent line where you've got a principle that you can apply. If, it, if you can't apply consistently, it's not a good principle. Special mm. pleading otherwise. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, so that's what I find myself thinking about more and more as, I'm, as we're looking at things. Right, a few domestic things to go through and the Victorian election coming up and Guy Rundle wrote an article in Crikey. I've been quite quoting Crikey as much as I was at one point. They were pretty, particularly good when Scott Morrison was running amok. I haven't been as good since. I, I, but I think you might have just been disillusioned by the fact that it's not the small player you thought it was. It might, well, it might be part of it. But I don't think so. I mean, I was quite happy to find this article and go with it. Guy Rundle is an interesting writer. He's got a good turn of phrase. And it's probably why I'm going to quote bits of this article because I think he's just got a good turn of phrase at different points here. Guy Rundle on the Victorian election. Politically, organisationally and morally, Victoria's Liberal Party is unfit to take power and hold office, which is unlikely to happen anyway. He goes on. In absolutely and in every way, every way they're unfit to do it. He says, the Liberal opposition is not simply a party in poor shape needing a bit of luck. In fact, it is a destroyed organisation midway through an internal party struggle under investigation for, for numerous electoral breaches, studded with numerous unvetted candidates, honeycombed with weirdos and preferencing neo-Nazis. It's good. Internal party struggle, studded with numerous unvetted candidates and honeycombed with weirdos. Honeycombed, I, I that's good. I don't get the fetish about this preferencing. Mm. Preferencing has zero outcomes. Yes. Un does. Unless you choose to follow the, what the, who they preference, yeah. it, it doesn't affect your vote in any way, shape or form. No, but it says something about the party. Oh, absolutely. That, that they're recommending this. So... That's what he's getting at, I think. So it's second time around leader, Matt Guy, now in press conferences, seems to just hang there like an undercard boxer, clinging to the ropes long enough to earn the appearance fee. He says this would be this would all be said more explicitly if the two main news groups were not on the ropes he was clinging to. So yeah, it's the the media down there in Victoria is going nuts, mainstream media in terms of their support for these liberals. So latest two-party preferred was 53-47. 
and we'll see what happens in that election. Yeah. With just going back to Qatar, essential Lord Don says uh, Budweiser has an agreement for 12 years and, and two days out they said no alcohol breach of, yeah, so they basically not allowed selling of alcohol at the games. And one of the major sponsors is a, is a beer maker. So you wouldn't be happy if you were them. No, no. There was some news headline about some bloke who'd walked five miles to get a pint mm. at the World Cup. And I thought, really? Wow. Is, is that the news? Mm. That, mm. Unlike the Argentinian female reporter who got robbed while she was interviewing members of the public, and she right. went to report it to the police, and they then said, so if we catch this guy, don't worry about it, we've got cameras everywhere, facial recognition, it, it's not a problem, we'll, we'll figure out who it is. When we catch him, what do you want us to do with him? Oh, uh, really? <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? She said, well, do you want to throw, us to throw him in prison for five years? Do you want him kicked out of the country? What, what do you want? Right. And she yep. was a bit taken aback by the fact they were just saying, what punishment do you think we should give to him? There you go. A culture where the victim has a a say in what happens. Yeah. Maybe too much too much Possibly. of a say. Actually, there was a bit more in this article by Guy Rundle, basically saying that Victoria used to be the intellectual sort of centre of Australian liberalism and and was the first place in the world where a certain type of social classical liberalism came together in a stable and lasting fashion. And so you had social protection and the guarantee of positive freedom sort of mixed together in, in a formula that was working to some extent. And he said that Jeff Kennett turned the party into a spiv machine and he broke the alliance between principles and politics. And then along came Michael Kroger and he took his eye off the party infrastructure as evangelicals, Mormons and, and others took over the party. and. When COVID came along, there was an opportunity to clean up the party and get rid of some of this brand stacking, but they didn't do it. They didn't have the nerve. And as a consequence, you have the most energetic internal agents in the Liberal Party actually loyal to other forces, i.e. the Christian Yeah, the Christian beliefs. And the extremes have become the centre. And the former party centre has become a series of exile camps. So I have predicted, as you know, dear listener, the sort of splitting up of the Liberal Party where Christian evangelicals will keep hold of the party and those that have become teals, if you like, will have to form some other party of some sort. A long and painful process. Whilst it seems like a good idea, the problem is... Without a second party to keep Labour in check, mm. will Labour become so full of themselves that they'll do stupid things? Indeed, yep. And and also we've got in America with Trump announcing his run and you know, that could signal a split in the Republican Party. And unlike Australia, they don't have preferential voting over there. So... Splitting the vote is diabolically damaging to a particular to any party. So, if Trump proceeds and 
keeps going and doesn't pull out and the Republicans, you know, endorse somebody else other than Trump, that splitting of that conservative vote is just going to cause them huge problems, particularly with no preferential voting. So may see a split there, may see a split in Australia. We'll wait and see. Joe nearly split his head with some boom mic or something. Yeah. Overexcited microphone. Indeed. Mm. All right. Okay. So still on these sort of evangelicals and what happened in America, for example, I've got a couple of clips here. So this is one of these guys in America talking about what happened in the midterm elections. I'll play this one. That's why there was no red wave. Abortion changed everything. And even though all the polls were showing that the economy was the main issue, abortion is a religious issue. And religion creates more passion than anything in the world. If you don't believe it, go to a church meeting where there's a debate going on. So religion creates passion. And there's a religion of demons that loves abortion. That religion of pro-abortion showed up. There we go. A religion of demons that are pro-abortion. I've got another one here that that I'll add. So let me just find this one, this guy here. This is just sort of typical examples of what's appearing in the media in America in response to that midterm election by pissed off evangelicals. You got to recognize the fact that this is a godless country. I hate it. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's heinous. It's evil. But this is an evil country. And this country will surprise you with how evil it is. And that's why you've got to get this out of your head that there is some silent majority cavalry that's going to come out of the woods and save us at the last minute. It's not. When we meet the left on the battlefield and they outnumber us like five to one, that's it. But the point is, when you look at these things like abortion, it's popular. People like abortion. Hate it, but it's true. And you can thank the Jewish media for that. Abortion's popular. Sodomy's popular. You know, being gay is popular. Being a feminist is popular. Sex out of wedlock is popular. Contraceptives are, that's all popular. That's all, that's not to say it's good. That's not to say I like that. Popular means the people support it, which they do. And it sucks and it is what it is, but that's why we need uh, dictatorship. <laughs> that's unironically why we need to get rid of all that. We need to take control of the media or take control of the government and force the people to believe what we believe or force them to play by our rules and reshape the society. Well, there you go. If at first you don't succeed... Become a theocracy. <laughs> that's right. But if you thought, oh, that's just those crazy Americans, it'll never happen here. I'm well, sure there are people over here who'd very happily follow him. Yeah. I'm just going to give you an idea of, of one of the sorts of characters. Let me just find this guy here. This is Greg Smith, an Australian in America, who was being interviewed by one of the channels over there. Here we go. We need to save America before we can save Australia. So this is, I've come here to sacrifice three months of, of my life wow. to, to support MAGA, the, the MAGA candidates. I've been to Arizona, New Mexico and Florida. And for, for me, it's just important that in order to save Australia, I need, I wanted to be here to make sure that, that we get the right people over the line. Oh, isn't that comforting that Greg Smith is, is saving America to save us. Hmm, you find that we, comforting? Can we ban him from coming back? 
Can, can they keep him like they kept Cam, Ken Ham? Yeah. There we go. That's the sort of stuff that is going on. It sounds crazy. It sounds over the top, but it is happening. And the the depths that they've reached in America, it's only a matter of time before it it gets here as well. So look you forward to see, that. You did see the pictures of Gina at was yes. it Trump's announcement? Yes. Gina Reinhardt was at the mm-hmm. Trump announcement. Yeah. I she also wants to saw, make America great again for Australia. Yeah, yes. I also saw that they weren't allowing people to leave the room. Like apparently he was talking for quite a while and people were starting to get out of their chairs and head for the exits. And they basically didn't want didn't want the room to look half empty, so they just didn't let people leave. They just stayed. Yeah, quite there. a few people left and then security went, no more. <laughs> Not allowed to. That's it. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay, got another clip here for you. I thought these were going to be in a more coherent, organised fashion, but still in USA, and it's all about US Sorry, exceptionalism. Sorry, you were expecting these nutters to be coherent and organised. Yeah, it's hard to put them. It's hard to line them up coherently. But this is a clip where Zuckerberg was being interviewed. About, uh, about American exceptionalism. So it's some sort of like Senate inquiry or something like that. So let me just find this one and pull this one up. Zuckerberg, here he is. And, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, quite a story, right? Dorm room to the global behemoth that you guys are, o- only in America. Would you agree with that? Senator, you, mostly you in could, America. You couldn't, you couldn't do this in China, right? Or what you did well, in 10 years. Well, Senator, there are, there are some very strong Chinese internet companies. Right, but you're supposed to answer yes to this question. <laughs> okay, this, come on, I'm is, trying to help you, softball. right? I mean, give me a break. You're in front of a bunch of... The answer is yes, okay? So thank you. Now, your, your testimony... I've suddenly got some new respect for Zuckerberg. Because <laughs> he's not totally America is the greatest. <laughs> yeah. I was saying only in America. So, well, he, it couldn't happen in China, could it? I mean, well, actually, it, ha- it can and it does. He probably has dealings with Bang, no, not Banggood. What's the other one? The huge uh, one. Alibaba? Yeah, no, Alibaba. Or WeChat or whatever. Alibaba is as big as AWS in. It's big. Oh, it's, it's Amazon four times Web services. the size. Like, yeah, yeah, it's um, huge. Alibaba is like four times, I think it is, the size of Amazon. Huge. Yeah. Uh, and Yeah, but I meant in terms of hosting. Oh, okay. So, I don't know about that. Yeah, if you've got your own internet service, you can mm. run it up on Alibaba's servers, the same as you right. can with Amazon. Right. And and they are maybe not in the West, but certainly in other countries, they are one of the biggest providers. Yeah. So anyway, good on you, Zuckerberg, for actually listening to the question and just refusing to just agree. And yeah, as difficult as it is to say, you have to give the guys some, some marks for it. For that, so he ignored the script. Good on him. Mm. No, uh, I, I think he looks more robotic than Data. Mm. He does look a strange character. Got to say that. Um, the US is going to put over one hundred unmanned vessels in the Persian Gulf. They're going to deploy these drone boats under a task force to work against Iran in the region. 
Imagine if China decided to, or Russia decided to do that in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. But we don't even bat an eyelid. Doesn't make doesn't make any news at all. Like, just and that runs the axis of evil. Yeah, this is the hypocrisy and the inconsistency I keep talking about. I've had these couple of clips here. I'm going to get through a lot of clips on this episode. This one is about CIA propaganda because this is relevant because, once again, I'm painting a picture. Why am I painting a picture of America doing bad things or painting America in a bad light? Why are you always banging on about it, Trevor? (laughs) Well, because the mainstream media is doing a perfectly fine job of the opposite. Somebody has to fill in the gaps. That's what I'm trying to do here to some extent is just fill in some of what you won't see on the mainstream media. So let me find this one about... Look, just because you get your news from RT doesn't mean all of us do. Oh, I can't get RT in here. I'm not, I'm not getting it from RT. Let me see. CIA propaganda. Let me just check. I've got the right one here. I do. Here it is. Play this one. Bear with me and... Here we go. This is a former CIA CIA agent of some sort. Well, give me a concrete example of how you use the press this way. Well, for example, in my, my war, the Angola war that I helped to manage, one third of my staff was propaganda. I had propagandists all over the world, principally in London, Kinshasa, and Zambia. We, were, we would take stories which we would write and put them in the Zambia Times, and then pull them out and send them to a a journalist on our payroll in Europe. But his cover story, you see, would be that he he had gotten them from his stringer in Lusaka, who had gotten them from the Zambia Times. But after that point, the journalists, Reuters, and AFP, the management was not witting of it. Now, our contact man in Europe was. And we pumped just just dozens of stories about Cuban atrocities, Cuban rapists. We didn't know of one single atrocity committed by the Cubans. It was pure, raw, false propaganda to to create a an illusion of communists, you know, eating babies for breakfast. That's what makes it so difficult to trust the bad stories you hear about groups who are opposed to the U.S. It's so difficult to know where the truth lies on these things. Just got to take everything with a grain of, more than a grain of salt. It's just really hard to know where the truth is when the US just openly admits, yeah, we just get small media groups to take stories and then we get bigger media groups to... Take them from them, yes. Yeah. And this is what's happening in Australia where essentially the Murdoch press and the Costello press come out with nonsense about all sorts of issues and goddamn ABC just repeats these stories and I'm going to sort of get on to some examples of that. So we have a sort of a similar situation. Yeah. Especially anything about Dan Andrews. Yeah. Or about schoolies. Yes. What's the thing about schoolies? Hmm. Anything in particular? News.com has been running stories for the last four days about the horrible behaviour of those kids at schoolies. Right. The latest okay. one was they Still found a, a list of wish a wish list that some teenage boy had things he's going to do at schoolies, which okay. is just fantasy. Yes, and it's oh my god, how disgusting this is! They should be in doing some form of national service and getting some discipline, probably. 
China and uh, diplomatic measures. So we've had a G20 and President Xi has met with all sorts of people over the last few weeks, both at the G20 and then since he's been on a plane, he's been meeting all sorts of other groups. They've all been falling over themselves to have a meeting with them. And Australia managed to have a 32-minute meeting. And interestingly, Joe, a lot of the right-wing press has been quite favourable about Albanese's meetings with President Xi because the business councils and the other groups really want it. Like I think they are saying enough's enough, we've got to sell stuff. So I found... But it also gives them reasons to demonise him later on as being controlled by the communist Chinese. That's true. That's true. So there's been largely positive press about him meeting with the Chinese, with some notable exceptions that I'll get to. But what has, you know, basically the the argument I've been running over the past few months is the sort of end of US hegemony and uh, China flexing its uh, muscles and, and creating relationships with other groups and sort of oil and gas playing important role in in breaking this sort of hegemony up. So things that have happened, Bloomberg had an article saying this is about the computer chips. We talked about that in previous weeks. And Dutch minister says US cannot dictate approach to Chinese exports. The country will make its own assessment, the official tells the newspaper. So Xi had a meeting with the Netherlands and shortly afterwards the Netherlands says, we're going to make up our own mind about whether we supply machinery that will let you make computer chips. We had Albanese actually came out and said, Australia is unlikely to support Taiwan's push to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. So basically Albanese has said we're not interested in having Taiwan as part of a trade pact. That's a sort of a a pro-China line well, pro-mainland China line. The Thai Prime Minister has sped up a high-speed railway system that's being built by the Chinese. The Italian Prime Minister expressed the need for China and Italy to further and deepen their economic ties, and she stated that Italy rejects joining factions against China. And the Indonesian president participated in a ceremony, uh, again, about high-speed rail. And what else have we got here? Chile has supported China to join the CPTPP, this trade group. And New Zealand's come out as well and expressed the need to deepen their relationship and affirmed the One China policy. And what else we got? Spanish Prime Minister said that his government will create easy and safe environment for Chinese companies to invest in Spain and French President Macron said that France does not seek faction confrontation. They'll deepen their ties and he welcomes Chinese companies to invest in France. So there's a lot of countries coming out now and and basically saying, we're just going to deal with China. And it's going to be really interesting to see if the US can corral enough allies to do its bidding. Well, of course, the cheesy things are into monkeys, so willing to work with the Chinese. What was that? The, the, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys. 
cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Right? Do, you, do you not remember during the coalition of the drilling? No, is that, the, the French called were called the cheat. The French, oh, were they? by the Americans. Oh, okay. Were called cheese-eating surrender monkeys. That was when they because oh, they named because they refused to join the coalition of the willing. Yeah, coalition You're of the drilling. Right. right. And yeah. they they renamed French fries to freedom fries. Mm, yeah. So I mentioned before about the ABC parroting a lot of the right-wing Murdoch and Costello press points. And, look, I did not watch the whole Q&A episode, but I heard about what happened on it. So I saw enough to create this clip that I will put on now for you about Q&A and its episode on China, featuring, of course, Stan Grant and put him up there with James Carlton, somebody who's incredibly annoying. Alison has joined the chat room, I saw. Good on you, Alison. We... We did a little shout-out early in the podcast to congratulate you on your work. Okay, here's about two minutes from Q&A. Why was Anthony Albanese shaking hands with a man whose regime is accused of genocide? Xi Jinping is proving power is everything. The world can't ignore him. His self-proclaimed best friend, Vladimir Putin, is threatening nuclear war on Ukraine. Tonight, are our interests more important than our morals? Welcome to Q&A. Here's a question from Bob Vinnicom. After the Holocaust of World War II, we all said never again. So why is Albanese shaking hands and smiling with the Chinese dictator Xi while the genocide against the Tibetans, the Uyghurs and the Falun Gong practitioners is still going on? Santilla, what did you think? When mm, you saw it's that? a very good question and one that should be put to the Prime Minister and this government. I, you know, obviously these sorts of things are very complicated and China and Australia's relationship has had a bit of a rough, rough patch the last couple of years and I can see that, you know, this government's trying to sort of repair some of that and that was probably part of that and I think these things are complicated. But I do think that a big part of these conversations that happen within diplomatic circles are about symbolism. And it mm. does say something to be seen publicly shaking hands with someone whose government is accused of very serious human rights violations, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs and various other things, including as well as, you know, dual Australians that are in detention in China, who, you know, many believe should be brought home. And these are concerns that should that, that are very worrying. And, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think why, why was the Prime Minister shaking hands? with the leader of a country that has a very questionable human rights track record. The Prime Minister in meeting President Xi was an important meeting because dialogue is good, making sure that did, we talk with... Did he have to look so happy to be doing it? There was a big well, smile on his face. Well, I mean, that, so that, I guess the question goes to, mm. you know, in not speaking to the Chinese leader for such a long time, mm. is it beneficial to the national interest well, to have me, that conversation on put, human rights? Let me put that question to Joe Hockey. Did it help the Uyghurs that Australia was in the deep freeze during the Morrison years? No. No. So did that, did how, that how say you, that Australia How do you change behaviour if you don't speak to someone about their behaviour? So if we're not in conversation with China, which, by the way, is our biggest trading partner, mm. and there's, what, a million Chinese Australians living here? So, so what is going on? What is going on? But even Joe what? Hockey doesn't agree with them. Just... What, why is the Prime Minister shaking hands with the, the pres, President Xi? Why is he sh well? Why is he shaking hands with anybody? What? And Stan Grant did, did, did he did, did, did he have to look from happy? Singh not shake hands with the Saudi prince. 
You count your fingers afterwards. Make sure they're all there. And, you know, that other lay at the very beginning there, oh, yes, well, you know, there's dual Aussies in detention. You know, this is a very good question. Why is he shaking hands? Well, he shook hands with the US president and the UK prime minister and they're holding Australian citizen Julian Assange in a prison in Belmarsh. No question about that. Oh, God, it just pisses me off, the just hypocrisy of these people. If you want to play that game and you're demanding that this respect of human rights, then you've got to be consistent across the board. And the ABC, Stan Grant's promoted as some sort of China expert. He's just a dill. Just the fact that he's lived there for a few years hasn't helped him at all. So I just find that unbelievable that our national broadcaster has descended to such a level where they're saying he should have looked grumpy. Okay, maybe he had to shake G's hand, but he should have looked grumpy and not willing to do it. Is that the suggestion? Is that then, then where we've got? you just look churlish, don't you? I know. It just, you look stupid. It's just the most inane stuff. And presumably that's one of the best forums on the ABC to discuss issues along with the insiders and other groups. Allegedly. If you talk to people like, you know, right-wing Tony or others like that, they will talk about how biased the ABC is and just a left-wing rabble. And I just have these arguments saying, no, they're not. Have you watched it? Have you seen things like this? They're often parroting. read in the Murdoch press that it's biased. Yes. I just find it astounding that we've reached this, this level of craziness with our media. Complete waste of time to be watching these programs. Complete, not not only a waste of time, it's just going to fill you with nonsense and and indoctrination. Don't subject yourself to it. Get if you're going to get indoctrination, get it right here on this podcast. Is <laughs> we're we're happy to indoctrinate you. Yeah. John's finished with insiders. Yeah, because it's again just full of full of crazy. I mean, they had, uh, who's that guy from the Australian Foreign Affairs editor, Greg Sheridan, calling Jacinda Ardern a lapdog of China. He's the greatest lapdog of the USA that we've got. Anyway. Well, she was was shaking hands with Xi, wasn't she? Yes. And Joe, smiling, looked happy. Can you believe it? Deary me. That shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Ah, so in contrast, the BBC, I hope I uh, put this up, hang on a second. Yes, Jeffrey Sachs was being interviewed on the BBC and this was, I think, an interview about the climate change, COP27, Cop was that what it was? I think so, yeah. Meeting in Egypt and so have a look at this where the presenter starts to sort of do an ABC, and this Jeffrey Sachs responds before going any further. I'll play this one. The Biden administration has been strongly critical of China's actions on human rights, but engaging on climate change. Do you see that as a strategy that can actually work? I'm not sure why BBC started with listing uh, only China's uh, human rights abuses. What about America's human rights abuses? Uh, the Iraq War, together with the UK, 
completely illegal and under false pretenses. Uh, the war in Syria, the war in Libya, uh, the continued sanctions against civilian populations in Venezuela and Iran, walking away from the Paris Climate Agreement for the last four years, unilateral trade actions that have been deemed illegal by WTO. So one can make anything one wants, but we have really serious human rights violations by the United States abroad, not to mention an insurrection on January 6th in our own country, not to mention the continued massive racism, white supremacism, and abuse of incarceration of hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S., Black uh, African-American people of color. So I think that the whole premise of this story is a little bit odd. No, but sorry, uh, and, uh, I'm looking, I, and, I'm sorry, and, and, we, we and have I to look, just, at, if I may, we I have found to look the, at... I found, I found the framing of it not what I expected. I thought we were going to talk about climate change, which we should. But I think that the idea that there is one party that is so guilty, how can we talk to them, is just a strange way to address this issue. Well, hang on. I'm, we have uh, United, sorry, Jeffrey, we have Jeffrey States, if I could come, US Jeffrey, that has, I, I'm, hoping that has been in, I'm hoping we can have a conversation. And if I could okay. just say, I'm, I'm using, and, and, and what I'm saying back to you here is, we're also using the framing of the Biden administration. We're also talking from the perspective of how Joe Biden himself and those around him have talked about the human rights abuses well, in, yeah, in China. That, so, so course, you know, the, sorry, the, just, the just to say... Always, excuse me for one moment. The U.S. always attacks other countries. It holds itself sacrosanct. Wow. Mm. <clears throat> That's the way to do it. Brilliant. Hadn't yes. seen that happen here. Have not seen that happen here. Well, um, what's the name on the ABC used to hold politicians to account? Mm -hmm. Hasn't happened in a while. Mm. But he was right in the way he talked about framing. And mm. Alison, that goddamn James Carlton on that, God forbid, if I just backtrack to that, he would just try and frame things in a manner that was just crazy, actually. You can understand why politicians sort of get media training to basically just ignore the question and just say the thing that they want to say. And I think... Um, the classic is the, not that I'm a fan, but the Jordan Peterson interview with Kathy Newman, I think it is. Yes, yes. So what you're saying is, no, I'm not saying that at all. Right, yes. Don't frame. I'm, just, I'm mm. not going to let you frame the whole thing the way that you are. So... The uh, that sort of Stan Grant Quanda episode was an example of of framing, and it made it really difficult for people to, to you know to break through that framing. You have to be as aggressive as Jeffrey Sachs was in that interview with the BBC, where he just said, "No, I'm not having a bar of this. You are framing this in a way that I'm just not going to start with." So, not easy to do. Some other examples of stuff as I get through my that I've had stored for a while here. This is a situation in China where this professor, oh no, where there was a, I hope I've got it here. No, I don't. It was, it was basically a clip of this uh, UK journalist in China and he was stopped by the authorities from, he was just standing on a street doing a piece to camera and he tweeted and said, imagine if 
China's journalists in other countries were hassled like this by the police for simply filming a TV piece to camera in the street. This happened during the recent party congress and I'd forgotten about it. By the way, we had no choice but to pack up and go. So the party congress, he's on the street doing a piece to camera. Authorities come along and say, move along. And in his tweet he was saying, imagine if this happened to Chinese journalists. But the same sort of thing actually happened in the UK with UK journalists. So there's been a spate of incidents recently, Joe, with people pouring paint on works of art and then gluing Mm -hmm. themselves to the wall and there was something going on and these guys were filming it. I'll just play part of this one in the UK. There's a lot of background noise, so I'll cut it short. But they're on a bridge mm-hmm. with cameras. They're obviously part of the press filming something. They get arrested. So it does happen everywhere. Yeah. Not to say that it's acceptable, of course it's not, but it's just. I, I have some ABC article about 16 year old down in Byron who got a beating from the cops and it was filmed from the balcony of a, an apartment that was eye looking. Mm. And it was certainly alleged the cops then went round, they couldn't see the people on the balcony, but the bystanders at ground level, they went around and threatened them, saying, I hope you haven't filmed that. Right. Happens everywhere. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. some places are more of a police state than others. But, you know, as I look around the world and think of places where I'm likely to be beaten up by the police when I'm innocent or worse, shot dead while I'm eating a hamburger in a McDonald's car park or something like that, you know, the place I'm thinking of. Anyway, that's a bit of a wrap. Or shot dead after you called 911. Yes. That was that Australian woman. Indeed, yes. Who was very threatening in her mm. negligee in the middle of the night. Yes. yes, that's it. Yeah. So that's just a bit of a rundown of just hypocrisy, if you like, in the way things are reported. It's really difficult to know where the truth lies and it's a real challenge to keep a balance in your head and go, hang on a minute, let's just not necessarily fall for the normal good guys, bad guys narrative that's trying to be imposed here. Maybe they're all bad guys, for example, and there are no good guys. All cops are bastards. Mm. Oh, okay. Still going around the world. Venezuela, a pariah state, Joe, Mm. under sanctions, had their money confiscated. to, To be communist. Yes, and had all their assets confiscated and... Basically, Macron said of Venezuela, it's not been a democracy for a long time. I'm in favour of having the sanctions. 
pressure on the regime will bear fruit when those who impose sanctions work together. That was him four years ago. But something's changed, Joe. Oil. Mm. Venezuela happens to have a lot of it. And France happens to need some because the supply of energy now is a little bit shaky. And at the COP27 meeting, basically, Macron sidles up to Nicolas Maduro, had a brief conversation. It's on a video and treats him like a long lost friend and says, We must get together and do more things. And it's just a capitulation, just a total sucking up by Macron to Maduro, despite official policy being that the sanctions. Well, the French, the French have been very, maybe not anti American, but certainly willing to go it alone Mm. on on various things. Right. Yes. Such as not joining the coalition of the drilling. Yes. But also opting out of NATO. Mm. Yeah. When it's convenient. When it's convenient. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, and there's an article also, headline was, Macron calls Russia one of the last imperial colonial powers on Africa visit. (laughs) So according to Alan McLeod, that was the precise time that irony died forever. I mean, the French president calling Russia one of the last imperial colonial powers in Africa. Ah, oh dear. France has got any land in Africa? No, but they'd like to throw their influence around wherever they can. Okay, Turkey is starting to pay for Russian gas in rubles. That's a big move. If the so, rubles are devalued at the moment, sounds like uh, a good plan. Are they devalued? I have no I idea. I don't think they are. I think they've, yeah. they actually... Dropped momentarily at the start of the Ukrainian war, but then they are back to their pre-war levels. Just an example of countries like Turkey, Iran, Russia, China starting to deal in energy in things other than US dollars. And as I've mentioned before, when the US dollar went off the gold standard, Bretton Woods, and it was no longer equivalent to certain number of ounces of gold, by arrangement with the Saudis, it became equivalent to a certain number of barrels of oil. And if that starts disappearing, then that's the end of the line for the American hegemony. German inflation for the month of October, Joe, dropped 4.2%. Have you ever heard of inflation dropping? See, the consumer price index in Germany dropped 4.2%. Oh, isn't it negative? Yes. So they have deflation. Yes. That's a lot. So Is that a bad thing? I don't know that it is a bad thing, but it's I mean, a is very it a sign of an economy that's about to explode? It's it's it would it would have me worried. I mean or, or is this a statistical screw up? Uh, no, I think this is I think this is you know, adjusted, seasonally adjusted and things like that, I would assume they do the same sort of stuff. But, you know, there's a graph there where everything looks very normal, then a huge spike of 8% and now a negative 4.2%. You know, the one thing about currency is major fluctuations are not good. You want confidence in your currency because currency relies on faith. And as soon as it starts bouncing around, that's not a good thing. So that's uh, the German inflation rate dropping and joe did you see that 
New Zealand's voting age is under review because some young young Kiwis started a legal claim and said it's discrimination to not allow 16-year-olds to vote? No, I know that it's been talked about for a while, Mm. lowering the age of voting. So I had some victory in a court case and they've got some sort of Bill of Rights type legislation that says you cannot discriminate on the basis of age against people over the age of 16. So some young Kiwis said, well, we're not allowed to vote. That looks like discrimination. So that's moving along in New Zealand. You think a 16-year-old is... Mm. Then we're screwed. Or sorry, McDonald's is screwed. All of the fast food joints are screwed. Why would that be? Because they hire under 18s because they pay them below minimum wage. And you think they'll then vote for the party that bumps up the minimum wage for 16-year-olds? Well, but I mean, even if if they're considered Mm. to be old enough to have equal rights to adults. Joe, that won't happen. I'll say, we we can send you off to war at 16, but we're still only going to pay you a 16-year-old's wage. Probably, because you're still living at home with mum and dad, therefore you don't need a real wage. Hmm. Ah, where are we up to? Okay. That's around the world. We've dealt with quite a few countries. History of money, Joe, is not what you think. So this is going to be interesting in relation to cryptocurrency. So there was a big run on a particular type of cryptocurrency and even Bitcoin, which is sort of the largest of the cryptocurrencies, has suffered some major falls in value. Thinking about money, most so this is from an article in The History of Money. Most of us have an idea of how money came to be. It goes something like this. People wanted to exchange goods for other goods, but it was difficult to coordinate. So they started exchanging goods for money and money for goods. This tells us that money is a medium of exchange. It's a nice and simple story. The problem is that it may not be true we may be understanding money entirely wrong. So work by some academics has been on this. All this is in the show notes, by the way, for the patrons. What they've said, or what they've found is the origin of money is more like this, that in pre-market feudal societies, there was a system of maintaining justice in the community. If somebody committed a crime, the authority, and let's call him the king, would decide yeah. the criminal owed a fine to the victim. And the fine could be a cow, a sheep, or chickens, depending on the crime. And until the cow was brought forward, the criminal was indebted to the victim, and the king would record the criminal's outstanding debt. So this changed over time. Rather than paying fines to the victim, criminals were ordered to pay fines to the king. This way, resources were being moved to the king who could coordinate their use for the benefit of the community as a whole. And this was useful for the king for the development of society. But it became more than just sort of criminal fines. It was expanded. And the king created debt records of his own. You can think of them as pieces of paper that say, the king owes you. So next he went to his citizens and demanded that they give him the resources he wanted. If a citizen gave their cow to the king, the king would give the citizen some of his king owes you papers. Now, a cow seemed more useful than a piece of paper, so it seems silly that a citizen would agree to this. But the king had a solution to make sure everybody would want his 
king owes you papers, he created a use for them. He proclaimed that every so often, citizens had to come forward to the kingdom and each citizen would be in big trouble unless they could provide little bits of paper that showed the king still owed them. In that case, the king would let them go. So essentially, dear listener, money was created between the kings and the palaces and the people, little chits of what the king owed to people and what people then owed to the king or the palace. And because there would be periodic taxation, you would need to supply some of these IOUs in order to pay a tax debt. And that's how money was created. It was transactions between the public and the king. It wasn't created initially as a means of exchange between people. And so you have to think of this in today's world with cryptocurrency and its its value. So the Australian dollar, for example, will always have some value in Australia because the Australian government will say to its citizens, you need to pay tax or a fine or something else, and it's got to be in Australian dollars. So you will, they'll always have some value because you'll always have to pay tax with some Australian dollars. That's not the case with cryptocurrency. There's no, well, with the crazy exception of El Salvador, which stupidly sort of made a cryptocurrency almost like its its country's own currency, just ignoring that crazy situation for the moment. No country is going to say, oh, you can pay your tax with cryptocurrency. That's not how it's going to work. So it doesn't have the inherent value, cryptocurrency, that sovereign fiat currency has because that need for it comes about in many ways, because of the underlying need to pay a tax in that currency. So yeah, so that sort of explains a little bit about how you should think about cryptocurrency. And Joe, there's all sorts of work being done in the podcasting world where people can listen to podcasts and donate cryptocurrency as they're listening. There's these apps that are starting to allow that. And if you've got a light, there's a certain number of apps that allow it. If you've got a cryptocurrency wallet, you can transfer satoshis can you pay magic beans too no just satoshis the the good thing about about it is there's the transactional cost of transferring bitcoin or satoshis which satoshis are a fraction of a bitcoin if if you're trying to transfer money from credit cards there's always a transaction cost that eats away at it whereas they don't have the same amount of you, you can do very micro transactions small transactions in cryptocurrency without whittling and, and away fuck the planet over at the same time yeah because yes, the biggest problem the, with cryptocurrencies is the amount of energy required to to mine yeah, it yes because these computers are just churning away um, mm-hmm. exactly yeah so anyway think about all that when you if you are crazy enough i mean if you have a little bit of cryptocurrency just as a means of exchange, like 50 bucks in a wallet somewhere because you're just swapping small amounts with somebody. Fair enough, but think very, 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 very closely about whether you would ever use it as something to invest. So, No, I'd get my money out of crypto as soon as possible. 
Yes, indeed. Okay, so that was that was that. And now I wanted to go final topic, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get to this, but looks like I am. So this is to do with Japan, and I found this article which was by a guy called just the size of this window. Correct. Robert H. Wade. He is a professor of global political economy at the London School of Economics, New Zealand citizen, worked at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University. He worked at the World Bank. He worked at the US Congress. He was at Princeton University and at MIT and Brown University. So he's got some credentials in economics and political economy. So this is looking at Japan in particular and Taiwan and Korea. And why did those countries end up becoming developed, prosperous, first world countries when other countries did not? And I've been banging on for a while about neoliberalism and what it did to Latin America, the Global South. Joe, you finished reading that book by Naomi Klein, Shock Doctrine? Oh, no, no. I watched the documentary. Right. Where did you see that? Are you allowed so to say? Was that any legal? Right. No, no, it's legal. Okay. He, he was set up to stream media off your local hard drive, but they've now got into streaming movies and they've got a whole bunch, mostly stuff that nobody wants to watch, but in their documentary section, there's some awful stuff like Zeitgeist, but then there's An Honest Liar or The Unbelievers, a couple of the other documentaries that were probably 10 years old, and one of them was The Shock Doctrine, Mm -hmm. which is Naomi Klein delivering a lecture at a university, oh, Chicago, School of Economics. Okay. But interspersed with video of various things to illustrate her talk. Right, okay. Because I was thinking I didn't know there was a documentary on it, but yes, okay, it's her talking about it at at a university giving a lecture type thing. Yeah, I mean, 80% of it is film of whatever's going on that she's using as an illustration. And then the the final 20% is her talking on these points. So she's she's effectively the narrative. Okay, Sock Doctrine. Actually, I found a very influential book. To read essentially looked at various examples around the world where countries experienced a shock, which might be a weather event or a natural disaster, earthquake, tsunami, might be some other shock event. And basically, her premise was that there were right wing forces that were all set to go in the event of countries being in a crisis situation. And they would swoop in and convince whatever authorities were there to allow them to make changes that essentially opened up the economy to multinationals, sold off public infrastructure and other sort of typical neoliberal policies that would be brought in and the public who were in shock and Maybe if there'd been a tidal wave, they were still at high ground sheltering in the jungle while their fishing village was then being demolished and a bunch of sort of tourist accommodation was being put up, things like that. That was part of the sort of premise of the shock doctrine. She said the first experiment, because it was all Friedman 
isn't it? In the Chicago School of Economics. Yes. Yep. So Chile was the first experiment. Yes. Followed by Argentina. And it was interesting as these right-wingers took over and implemented the Chicago School policies, uh, mm. how basically inflation just went through the roof. Yes. And ended up screwing the, the low economies. Yeah. Uh, and interesting, and then talking about Maggie mm-hmm. and how she tried to, but how she balked at becoming a right-wing dictator and said that there were some policies that were just a bridge too far for her. Right, even though she was best mates with General Pinochet. Mm-hmm. thought he was a great guy. Yes. Yeah. Right yeah. up until Spain extradited him and then prosecuted him. Right. Did she give up on him then, did she? Well, no, because she wasn't a prime minister, but she was standing by his side whilst he was being extradited from the UK. I think he was yeah. arrested in the UK and then extradited to Spain. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the general IMF World Bank policy is with, say, developing countries, and let's just typically think South America, is they would say to them, you guys are in trouble, we gave you a loan, you haven't repaid it. What you've got to do is sell off your public infrastructure to multinational corporations. You've got to let them come in and buy all of your good stuff and you can then use that money to pay off your debt. You have to reduce your social services and you, you know, you cannot put in any sort of trade barriers. So you might want to start a manufacturing sector, but you can't put in a trade barrier to protect that industry in its infancy while it's trying to get up and running. So that makes it impossible for these countries to develop industries of industrial industries of manufacturing or high tech because you can't just go from zero to competing against the existing players. You need some protection. And the World Bank and the IMF just don't allow these countries to do it. They ban them from protecting these industries. And that's the secret to developing an industry. And so anyway, the question is, How did Japan, Taiwan, South Korea end up, and to some extent also Singapore, Hong Kong, how did these countries break through and and actually manage to become successful? Cheap labour, wasn't it, at the time? Well, it's a combination of things, Joe, but the the narrative that they'd like to tell you is that it was liberal-minded free enterprise that allowed these countries to succeed. Cheap labour didn't spend much, relied on cheap labour and therefore undercut everybody to build up an industry is is kind of, you know, one story, for example. But that's not what happened. So in this article, and again, it will be in the show notes for the patrons, how did they do it? So I've highlighted it's from this article, which is going to take me 10 or 15 minutes to go through and paint this picture. So abstract. Few non-Western countries have reached the general prosperity of Western Europe and North America. Just about all of the countries which were in the periphery in 1960 remain in the periphery today. The clearest exceptions are in capitalist Northeast Asia, namely Japan, Taiwan and South Korea, and you could add Singapore and Hong Kong to that. So how did they escape the periphery? How did they do it? And he says here, 
The Northeast Asian countries remain among a still smaller set of non-Western countries which have developed mostly indigenously owned firms across a broad range of major, major global industries. And they're able to act as first-tier suppliers to Western multinationals. So in these countries, they're locally owned and operated and they're able to compete. And the types of industries that they're in includes chemicals, petrochemicals, electronics, steel, shipbuilding, cars, car parts, and more recently biotech, advanced semiconductors, nanotechnology, and even space exploration. So these countries are located some 9,000 kilometres across the Pacific from the world's biggest and most innovative market, namely the USA. While next door to the USA, Mexico has languished, nowhere near achieving what these countries did. So how exceptional is the economic performance? Um, How many non-Western countries have reached the general level of prosperity of Western Europe and North America in the past two centuries? And in this article, he says fewer than 10 countries have managed to do it. And there was a World Bank study in 2013 that confirmed this conclusion. It identified 101 countries in 1960 as middle income and found that of those, only 13 reached high income almost five decades later. So 101 countries, only 13 managed to do it. And there's a table there which shows the average income of countries in 1970 as a percentage of US average income. And then it shows their average income in 2010, so 40 years later, again as a percentage of US income. So take, for example, Taiwan. In 1970, the average income in Taiwan was 20% of US average income. And 40 years later, 40 years later, Taiwanese reached the point where the average income is 80% of the US income. So it's an amazing performance. Japan was 50%, now it's 70%. South Korea was 10% in 1970, 10% of the American wage, average wage. And then 40 years later, the average South Korean was 70% of the average American. Whereas you look at countries like India, it was 5% and now it's only 10%. Brazil was 15 now only 30 So that's the sort of progress that they're talking about. And this article says that there seems to be some sort of glass ceiling or some trap that stops countries progressing through. And the next section discusses the causes proposed by analysts writing mainstream economics often called neoliberalism. So by the 1980s, when Northeast Asia's rise began to attract attention, most economists viewed their subject through the lens of neoliberalism. So they looked at these successful countries, most economists, and said, oh, that's the free market working in these countries. So... Neoliberal philosophy says that the market is the best institution for growth and liberty. And even where there are market failures, you're best just leaving things untreated because the cost of correcting them through state intervention is is dangerous. And 
they look for a maximum degree of openness to the international economy and a maximum integration. And the idea that governments would curb competition in the interests of helping some firms and industries while they're sort of getting themselves organised, that's not part of the formula. So the World Bank's 1993 book called The East Asian Miracle proves this thinking. It examined the causes of success in eight high-performing Asian economies and the book argues that openness to international trade based on largely neutral incentives was the critical factor in their growth, basically saying because they were open to trade, that's why they succeeded. And, and this sort of confirmed the whole Adam Smith neoliberal argument and, and, and basically the World Bank promoting market liberalisation pointing to these countries as success stories. But according to this paper, the writer says that's not the case and it's a far more interesting answer than that. And it turns out that the answer is closely related to geopolitics of Northeast Asia and the United States. Beginning in the late 19th century, there were three orders in East Asia. So we had Japan with its, basically Japan colonised Korea and Taiwan. And the Japanese colonial government treated Korea and Taiwan as offshore farms, mines and industries, and they were closely integrated. So by 1940, somewhere between 50 and 70% of Korean and Taiwanese children were in elementary school, and all three countries were more homogenous in terms of ethnicity and religion than most other countries. So that's interesting for starters that Japan colonised Korea and Taiwan and basically Japanesed them and their cultures became very close and education was a big part of what was going on. Second area was Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. So we had the colonialists transform the economy, except for Hong Kong, into commodity production for Western markets. So thinking sort of Indonesia, for example, we had the Dutch had colonised Indonesia and basically... Spice market. Yes, and plantations, rubber, rubber, stuff like that. Big landlords, an emphasis on single crops and, and a, a land-owning class. So in those sorts of countries, colonial governments was more passive so the Dutch were passive in the sense of accepting the incumbent landed elites and allowing them to just do what they wanted to do, provided the plantations were operating. So in those countries, by 1940, only about 2% of children were in elementary school in the French colony of Vietnam, for example. So whereas Japan, when it colonised Korea and Taiwan, had 50 to 70% of children in elementary school, France, when it colonised Vietnam, only had about 2% of children in elementary school. And then the third area, so we had Japan with Korea and Taiwan, that's one area. We had these sort of colonies with plantations, that was the second area, and then China, different case altogether. So turning back to Japan, Japan was forced in the mid-19th century to do stuff 
For some 250 years before the mid-19th century, Japanese rulers isolated the country. And then in 1853, Commodore Perry of the US Navy sailed into Edo, which is now Tokyo Harbour, with a fleet of warships and demanded that Japan open up to American commerce. Nothing's changed. 1853, nearly 200 years later, they're still doing it. Hey, they learned it from the British, come on. Yeah. Sailed in and said, except the Americans didn't want to occupy, they just wanted their companies to operate. They just wanted free trade. Yeah. So he sailed into the harbour in 1853 and demanded that the Japanese open up their economy. So his visit sent shockwaves through the Japanese country's leaders who feared that America might take Japan as a colony because they had just watched what had happened to China and thought, well, don't want that happening to us. Are we next? So the Japanese government responded with wholesale reforms to create a centralised state and national identity as the basis for a strong military. And they had this thing which was, if we take the initiative, we can dominate. If we do not, we will be dominated. So they saw the writing on the wall and got their act together. So the Meiji Restoration of 1868 launched a frenzy of industrialization and militarization that lasted several decades and they had a real developmental mindset that emerged. So there was a big push in state capacity. They sent teams of officials around the Western world to investigate ways to organize a modern society such as tax system, post office, railroad, army, parliament, judiciary and the like, and then they implemented the best models that they could at home. So Japan militarised so fast and effectively that in 1894-1895 its navy defeated China's and a decade later defeated Russia's. And this sent a shockwave through Western governments because for the first time in the modern era an Asian state defeated a European state. So Japan went on to become the first non-Western country to catch up with the West in broad measures of production structure, military strength and mass living conditions. So a combination there of, of culture and also pressing need, having seen what had happened to China and not wanting to succumb to the same fate. So after the war, Japan continued to be ruled by this developmental mindset which had been sort of institutionalised during the Meiji, the Meiji Restoration and in the build-up to the war. And a similar mindset was also institutionalised in Korea and Taiwan. Let's read on here. So basically also the developmental mindset emerged from the combination of a few factors. Lack of natural resources. So, above all, land and energy. Having actual a lot of natural resources is a, can be a bad thing, Joe, because one, you just get lazy in that you rely on the natural resources. Thinking of a country maybe in present world that has abundant natural resources and just is fairly lazy as a result and allows that industry to... Essentially, dominate bring in the yes, bringing in the wealth, and you don't bother doing anything with 
your other manufacturing industries because you think, oh, why should we bother? We can just dig stuff up. Mm-hmm. Well, so Japan wasn't able to just dig stuff up. The other disadvantage of that is if you do have stuff that can be dug up, countries like America want to take possession of you and take the stuff from you. So if you don't have it, then they don't want to take it off you is, a, is another sort of benefit of it. So it forces you to work on creating an industrial developmental capacity and places like America are not tempted to invade you and, and take your minerals. So there's that aspect. They also had an abundance of people. I was going to say the Americans prefer to invade, stick in a puppet regime. Yes. And then take take the stuff. Indeed. So they had that in their favour. They had to reconstruct from the war, but they weren't starting from zero. They had actually built up a a civilization, and so they just had to reconstruct. They knew how to do it. And... They had lots of American money. Yes. And, and the, well, and the, re, the other thing that they had in their favour was communist China and Russia on the doorstep. And the American fear that communist China and Russia would start to take over the world. So they wanted some friendly countries there as a bulwark against the yellow peril, if you like, from communist China and from from Russia. So American protectorate for many years after the war anyway, wasn't it? Yes. So we're going to get into the detail of that. So there's a few advantages for Japan in that it was already industrial developmental via culture. It was spooked by what happened to China, so it ramped up. It lost the war, but... It had no natural resources, so it's forced to rely on its people. It had a large population that was well-educated and it, it had the benefit of having a nearby threat so that the US would want to bolster it as a counter to that communist threat. Right, just turning briefly to Taiwan, the native Taiwanese, most of whose ancestors had come from the mainland two or more centuries before and had experienced 50 years of total separation from the mainland under Japanese rule, saw the Chiang Kai-shek as foreigners and vice versa. So they were very Japanese by that point, the Taiwanese. And in South Korea, they had a tightly disciplined military dictatorship. They used that external threat of communism, North Korea, as its justification. And the, uh, the ruler... Park Chung-hee, 1961, he had been educated in Japanese military academy, served in the Japanese army in Manchuria. He had studied the history of the Meiji Restoration and the role of the state in Japan's industrialisation. And so he was a chief architect and driving force of Korea's development until his assassination in 1979. So that was from 61 to 79. Here's an interesting fun fact. Soon after he took power, he arrested leading businessmen and threatened them with jail for corruption unless they left for the United States and returned with export orders. Well, that's one way of doing it, isn't it? I, I make a living as a sales rep. I tell you that, that, that would really focus the mind on getting some orders. 
The dominant political philosophies of these countries emphasised order and nationalism more than liberty and free enterprise. So where the West likes to paint these countries as lovers of liberty and free enterprise, in fact, culturally, that They're was autocratic. The mm. Yeah, having known people who grew up in Singapore, mm. uh, that was very much an autocracy. Indeed. So before the Second World War, the United States had little presence in Northeast Asia, but after the war, containment of communism became a top priority and the US saw China and North Korea as a severe threat to the US sphere of influence. So the US poured in assistance to its three Asian allies, providing troops, economic advisors, political advisors, teachers, accompanied by large financial transfers. Essentially, dear listener, because of the threat of communist China and North Korea, the Americans pretty much did a textbook of, of how to help countries out and make them successful. On the downside, they did send them their Mormons. Yes. Did they send them the Mormons or did the Mormons just sneak in? Oh, the Mormons like, went anyway. Yeah. Just, it's like rats on sailing ships. Is that mm-hmm. just, they're just there anyway. US advisors helped construct centralised top-level agencies that plan the use of very scarce capital and helped construct an effective civil service. During the American occupation of Japan, 45 to 52, the Japanese government instituted the most restrictive foreign trade and foreign exchange control system ever devised by a major free nation, and it did it with American blessing. Okay? So in the seven years immediately following the war, Japan had incredibly restrictive foreign protectionism. trade. Protectionism, exactly. The country's renaissance was helped much by the Korean War as well because Japan was the main source of American procurements for the Korean War. And the Japanese Prime Minister at the time later declared that the war was a gift of the gods because of the business that it generated. Incidentally, it was the Korean War that, that basically emptied the US government's coffers and sent it into deficit where it had to break with the gold standard because it was the money spent on the Korean War that finally broke the back of, of the American budget. But I digress. Okay. The US government gave strong backing for expropriative land distribution in all three countries, meaning they helped with land reforms that enabled people to get a piece of land, ordinary people. And they provided support for industrialisation by curbing the landed classes and strengthening peasant support for the state so that the peasant population, the rural population, felt good about what was happening and didn't want to start a revolution. So they made it clear to the US that they would not sustain this indefinitely. And so the main periods of intense US involvement were basically from sort of 1948 to around the mid-1960s. And so thanks to the threat of communist state expansion, the US wanted to protect its sphere of influence. It transferred huge resources to the Asian, Japanese, Taiwan, Korean economies. And 
it allowed, provided lots, and it allowed these countries to run sustained account deficits that would never allow Latin America to run. And also, it gave the aids and loans in a form that did not dilute national ownership of the industrial sector. So the Japanese, Korean and Taiwanese people were allowed to actually own these enterprises. And again, that's not what was allowed in the global south where multinational country companies would come in and buy and own what had previously been owned by the local population. Right, and they also provided a market for all these goods that were being manufactured. So compare that to the Philippines. The US saw no existential threat. And they, in terms of being worried about communists, they just relied on a counterinsurgence strategy. And they didn't try and do any land reform and didn't do anything like the assistance that it did in Northeast Asia. That's why a place like the Philippines got stuck and basically emphasized, you know, supported the Filipino government in its efforts to provide agricultural goods and raw materials, but not industrial goods. And because uh, it just wasn't worried about the threat, it didn't need the Philippines to be a strong country. Let me just see here. I can skip through that part, I think. I think I've already said that. And basically goes on to say that the, the governments in these countries targeted specific sectors and protected industry and encouraged industry, provided support and kept tabs of what industry were doing and set goals for them and said, well, we'll give you this, but you have to achieve these certain goals. And so it's quite a target where they said, we want to develop a certain type of industry and you five companies, you're going to do it. We're going to keep an eye on you. You are going to create a little, a sort of an industry group. We're going to provide from the government a secretary for that group, and we're going to know what's going on. So, really strong direction and monitoring by the government, where they set targets and planned for these industries at the same time as allowing the individual companies some level of autonomy and market decision-making, if you like. So really clever targeting is essentially like targeting with not like the Russian version of a GOSS plan where they said exactly every step of the way what you have to do. It was a, a more sensible form of targeting. And look, the article goes on, but I feel like I've been rabbiting on for long enough and I'm going to start repeating bits. The full notes are in the show notes that are given to the patrons. It does go on a fair bit on other things, but essentially that's it, Joe, is that the story of these countries was one of, of heavy state involvement. Different and, inference by the Americans. And support by the Americans rather than crippling and that's how they managed to break through. Interesting combination of factors. 
I particularly liked the factor of being unlucky enough to not have resources and unlucky enough to be next door to a communist threat actually turned out to be lucky things in that it it was the stuff that helped trigger the United States to work hard to beef them up properly. Very interesting. Well, I wonder if how much Western Germany was the same. Mm, indeed. Indeed. I mean, Japan and Germany, the debt was forgiven, unlike mm. the First World War where there was reparations. Indeed. Which they thought, even if it didn't, led into the poverty that led to Hitler coming to power. Indeed, yep. Which is why they forgave and also basically invested heavily to rebuild, mm. whereas Europe had to repay the debts, to repay the loans for equipment that they used to fight the Second World War. Mm. Mm. Now, next week, I think I'll be able to get on to talking about, now let me just get the exact wording of this. Just bear with me for a second. It is, it's on the tip of my tongue and I'm not, Hang on a second. I've just got to find this next week. This is from Japan. The Plaza Accord. So things went swimmingly well for Japan until the Plaza Accord. And that was when the US said, hang on a minute, you guys are doing too good. And they changed some stuff. And So was this after the 1980s where they bought up half of America? Yeah, exactly. So... Next week will be the Plaza Accord, where the story is not so good for Japan, where, in fact, the US turns against them. So that'll be next week. I know that will be that much anyway. So, right, well, in the chat room, I hope you enjoyed that. Something a bit different, but I think it's important to understand the history behind these things. Yeah, I think they might. Well, there's six people watching. Anyway, well, 9.17, an hour and three quarters. That'll do us, Joe. You around next week? Keep Shay out of the shark tank. Yeah, I think so. All right. Okay. All right. Well, dear listener, large record next week, plus whatever else happens in the meantime. Talk to you then. Bye for now. Bye all. Yeah. Iron fifth and a vibe with love. Little shit.